Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Cushman and Wakefield CEO, Brett White, and Christian Ulbrich, the CEO of JLL, for a discussion around the return to public spaces from multi-story office buildings to malls to high street shopping centers. We analyze how buildings and the technology in them will change as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and how the dynamic between landlords and tenants could evolve. Enjoy the discussion. Brett and Christian, thank you so much for, for joining. Um, do you want to just quickly give, give uh, your backgrounds uh, for everyone? Sure, Christian, go ahead. Well, I'm Christian Ulbrich. I'm the CEO of Jones Lang LaSalle. I have been with the company now for 15 years, and I'm talking to you from my home office in Frankfurt. And Brett White, and I'm uh, chairman and CEO of Cushman & Wakefield. And I'm here in uh, Ventura County, north of Los Angeles, in my home office. Great, great to be here, Brendan. Nice. And well, I'm out in, I'm out in Utah, so... This is, a, this is a testament to what we're going to be talking about, which is the, the transition back to a, a physical environment for working from a virtual one. Um, so I, I guess at the, you know, as a first question, I'd love to hear your thoughts, um, Christian, just on how do you think the return to work will go, focusing predominantly on, on the U.S.? How do you think this transition will go? We're right now in this twilight where different states are setting different agendas. But like at a macro level, how do you think it will go? And how do you think um, how do you think real estate occupants should be thinking about it, right, with respect to their workforces? Well, I guess short term, it's all about safety and health. Um, so that will be paramount to whatever decision will be taken. So social distancing will be key, which obviously lowers the occupancy capacity of, of every building. And, and there's uh, a lot of kind of uh, technical challenges which getting people back into buildings, uh, but also with getting people to buildings. I mean, if you are living in a place where people tend to commute by car, that is, that is one way and that makes it obviously easier. But when you're living in, a, in an environment where people are using public transportation, then the way to work is, is a major, major issue, which is at the moment not, not easy to be solved. But then when you get into the building, you have the elevator issue. How do you get people into the building? We were just looking at our own headquarters in Chicago. And if we, if we follow the mass around social distancing in the elevator, it will take six hours to fill the building. Um, so that doesn't really work. So that's why, uh, uh, you know, there's a short-term response to it and then there's a longer term response to it but as i said short term it's all about safety and health and the repercussions that will have on getting people back into the office brad what do, what do you think what's your what are your perspectives well i, I think christian has it right it, the entire focus right now for uh companies is safety of the employee and that's of course important brendan because without being able to assure the employees are safe the employees aren't going to go back to work 
So it starts with creating an environment that employees look at and recognize as a safe place to be. There are, you know, Brenda, we put out our uh, going back to work readiness guide last week. It's almost 200 pages of technical applications of how you get from your house or your apartment to the workplace, how you behave and act in the workplace, where you sit, how you social distance, and how you get home. Christian's right, by the way. Um, part of the biggest challenge here for a lot of major cities, take New York or uh, London, Hong Kong, is mass transit, uh, and how different companies are dealing with that is different. But really, there are six pillars to the go back to work protocol. You got to prepare the building. Lots of work around that. If you go to sixfeetoffice.com, you'll see where we've put up our Amsterdam uh, uh, European headquarters uh, for the for the Netherlands uh, up in the space that we've now completed uh, that does have that six foot distancing. You got to prepare the workforce. You have to explain to them who and when in, in terms of returning to the, uh, in, to, to the built environment. You have to control access uh, to the environment. You have to think about how you're going to allow people in and when you're going to let them in. You have to have a uh, social distancing plan in the office, which again gets to the, to the build out. Um, you have to reduce the touch points and increase hygiene in the space. And then finally, and probably most importantly, you have to create a very transparent, constant communication protocol with employees that instills confidence in them that you have thought this through and you have, you have their safety um, as a paramount concern. I, I will tell you that in talking to lots and lots of, of large company CEOs the last three weeks, a few things have come through uh, very clearly. The first is that as, when this all started, the first reaction of, of many large companies was to say, my folks are working well at home, therefore I can reduce my footprint. I, I just have people permanently at home. That, that has changed in the last two weeks to a conclusion that to facilitate the social distancing that will be required in the workplace, companies would actually have to massively increase their footprint, which of course they're not going to do. But yesterday, David Arena from JP Morgan was on a webcast with me and he said, we did the math. We would need to increase our global footprint by 50%, 50 percent, five zero percent to accommodate the proper social distancing, which we are not going to do. So the entire uh, strategy that JP Morgan is using right now is how do we stage our people in the workplace so that we don't have to increase our footprint, but still protect social distancing. And that leads then to the protocols of A team, B team, one week on, one week off. Um, a lot of different ways people are thinking about flexible working so that they can protect the social distancing and not increase their footprint. But I think that my conclusion on all this is, is that while it seemed a terrific opportunity to reduce footprint, I don't see that happening. Yeah, and I would say that that's, that's actually consistent with my own personal experience. I was, as, as we discussed on our last call, I was shocked at how counterintuitive it was that we seem to be equally as productive in a virtual environment as in our office. Um, but there obviously are limits to that, and that's not true of everyone. And there is a certain psychology and culture that you can only build in, in a physical environment. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is so much of the, the demands for space are driven by the construct of a five-day work week, right? That, you know, people work typically in offices, knowledge workers, five days a week, and it's the same five days. And that in turn drives demand for parking and traffic patterns, but it also drives questions around density. Do you think companies will start to, in addition to toggling and kind of staging and making 
almost workforce is asynchronous, whereas you said, Brett, there's an A team, B team. Do you think companies will start to reevaluate having the five-day work week, or do you think that is kind of sacrosanct? Is that to Christian or me? Uh, that's to both of you, actually. Christian, go ahead. Well, I think this is a, a question which you cannot generalize because it depends heavily on, on what people are actually doing within a company. And we have to be quite careful that we are kind of taking our own experiences on how productive we are in working from home and, and apply that to the whole organization and to the different kind of job profiles you have within an organization. Um, by nature, people do want to be with other people. That's a, a fundamental human need. And so we have, that's, that's the first thing. We took a poll within JLL a couple of days ago around the question, uh, how do you want to work in, in the future? And only 4.9% of our employees said that they would like to work exclusively from home. And, and, and nearly 70% were saying, or 65% were saying it's supposed to be a mix. And the remainers were saying we would only like to work in the office. And when you then go deeper and look at who wants to work fully in the office, it's mostly the younger generation which wants to work fully in the office. And there are different reasons for that. It also has to do with their living environment at home. I mean, if you have a nice office um, and, and you don't have kind of uh, uh, space uh, density at home, but you, you really have, uh, you can really kind of enjoy your work experience from home. That's one thing. If you share an apartment in downtown London and in a basement apartment or ground floor apartment with very low natural light, uh, you look forward to get into the office. That's just one aspect of it. And then we also have to look at the type of job profiles. I mean, if we take the overall workforce in the society, the majority of jobs cannot be executed from home. But even if you go only down to office workers, only white color jobs, again, there's a, a big chunk of, of jobs where you can only be really productive within the office. So I think um, there will be obviously more work from home going forward, but we have experienced that already massively within our existing organizations, whether it's the JLL organizations or other organizations where, where people are allowed to work from home. We mostly implemented it due to kind of work-life balance questions, we implemented it to uh, encourage uh, uh, women who just uh, have or who have young children that they can bring both things together, their careers and their family life and we allow them to work from home. And so, and then a lot of people are anyway traveling, which means they are not working from their office. So they're used to not working in, in that given uh, office environment. So. I, you know, I think at the moment that topic is slightly overstated. I mean, uh, Brett was making uh, reference to what some big uh, global leaders were announcing the last couple of days with regards to commercial real estate space and how that will change in the future. I would be cautious around that. Yeah, I think yeah, on the point of a extended work week or, or let's, let's call it a fluid work week, uh, Brendan, I like that fluid work week. Um, I, I think there's, I, I'd say it this way, and I think Christian's got the point here, which is 
the way in which people are asked to work, the rules are now out the window. And so there is going to be, there already is, and there's going to be more tremendous flexibility on how employers allow their employees to work, whether it's at home, whether it's at the office, whether it's on a weekend or the weekday. And I think that that's, that's the key item here, Brendan, which is, I think what we've all learned in the last six weeks is that flexibility works just fine. Productivity numbers across industries, and, I, and I've spoken to all types of industrials and services firms the last month and a half, productivity numbers are as good at home as they are at the office. Now, what we've learned in China, by the way, is those productivity numbers go down as time goes on. So the productivity of our workers in China was very, very good the first four weeks of the lockdown. As that extended, those productivity numbers went down. And so there is an issue, I think, here, Brendan, of we're in the moment, at the moment. Everyone's got high adrenaline. This is new. This is different. This is frightening. This is a different way of doing our, our jobs. And everyone, had, by the way, has nothing else to do, really, but work. Um, I do think Christian's right, though. I think that we're going to revert back to some hybrid of what we had before and a virtual working environment. When it gets to will, will people want to work or asked to work on, say, a Saturday instead of a Friday, sure. I, and I think the way we'll think about that is it doesn't really matter when you're putting the hours in as long as you're putting the hours in. Uh, but I would, also, I would also underscore what Christian said, which is most people, I think, are going to want to go back to the workplace at least um, most of, uh, of the time. And you got to keep in mind, Brendan, for folks in the U.S., particularly folks in the U.S. who are in high growth businesses and, and, and so forth. The concept of working 24 seven is a very normal thing. That is not the case um, around the world. And, and there are many jurisdictions, Christian lives in one, there are many jurisdictions in Europe where you would not be allowed to do that. You can't ask employees. Uh, they have to shut off their devices at 6 p.m. Uh, on Friday. It's a very different jurisdictional situation as you go around the world on when people can be asked to do work. And by the way, some of those restrictions occur here uh, uh, as well. So I think, Brendan, you're right. I think that what we've all learned here is that there are a lot of ways to get work done and flexibility is, is, is now massively important and I think recognized as, as a, a proper way to think about work hours. And, and so it's, it, they're all really interesting points that I think there is going to be this hybrid um, and I, I like the, the concept of like, yeah, we're in this hyper-productive period right now because it's new, right? It's just something different. Right. It's like whenever you move into a new office, I think everyone's had this experience of, oh my gosh, it's so productive. And then over a six-month time horizon, it kind of returns to some level of normalcy. The, the, the thing that has been interesting for me that I think might not uh, go back to normal is business travel. Um, you know, so much of our business is premised on face-to-face -face meetings and I have a significant portion of my team traveling constantly. Um, and we've been doing all of our meetings remotely. And so one thing that I think will forever change, certainly for our business, and I would imagine for a lot, is, is business travel. I don't think it goes away, but I think there's a sense that not all of it is, not all meetings are necessary to have face-to-face. -face. And the other thing that's been surprising is we're holding our first, we used to do these big annual conferences. We're doing our first completely virtual conference. And it actually looks like the, the, the level of attendance is going to be higher. And in some ways, the level of engagement can be higher. 
Um, so it'll be interesting how that impacts just business travel and the, and the hospitality sector. But in the rubric, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say, on, on the topic of conferences, here's an interesting point that, that you are raising, which is absolutely true, Brendan. Um, I was speaking, so in the, on this JP Morgan call yesterday, we had uh, one of the CEOs on was talking about their annual meeting, which they'll do virtually. Uh, I think most companies will do virtually this quarter uh, and next quarter. And they said that the attendance at the annual meeting will be three times their physical attendance in annual meeting. And he, and he said one of the reasons for this is that in a virtual conference or virtual meeting, I can bring along with me in the conference room I'm in or on Zoom three or four of my analysts or other people that work with me to participate and listen to the conference who would not have been invited or could not have gotten tickets in the past. It really, it, you're right, but it, it blows up the model of what communication really is because when you use technology, it becomes very democratic. It, you know, everyone can participate in and, and attend. Yeah, and, and going back to the rubric you mentioned, Brett, and kind of your going back to work plan, I'm curious as to how do you think buildings will will change with respect to the technology in them as a result of this crisis? I mean, you can kind of look at this crisis as perhaps a dress rehearsal for something we might face five, 10 years from now that's similar and more virulent, right? Um, so what do you think is the imperative for real estate owners to adopt technology? And in particular, I'm focused on access control, right? Which is kind of been a core focus for real estate owners. What, what do you think that right. looks like? What are the trends? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, I think that most of us now look at this current pandemic as a trial run <clears throat> for what could be coming in the future, Brennan. You're right. So I don't think anyone believes this is one and done. And so because it isn't likely one and done, many of the protocols that are necessary to go back to work now are likely to become structural. And technology is going to lead the way in that. So when you think about technology, I think about it a couple ways. One is Technology for the employee becomes critically important, not just remote working, which we've talked about ad nauseum, but just how they interact with the built environment. So for instance, many, many companies right now, us included, are developing apps that an employee has on their personal device that they will use every morning to fill out the health checklist at home, take their temperature, input that information, and that app will tell them, by the way, to Krishna's point on the elevators, that app will tell them what time to arrive at the office. So we don't have a line of 300 people out the door waiting for an elevator. When they get to the office, it will tell them where they go because many offices are gonna go hot desking. So it'll tell them where they're going to sit that day. It'll tell them the conference room four, the meeting there that you saw is completed. However, we haven't cleaned it yet. It's not disinfected. And that might be a red light conference room that'll go green light. So, so technology for the employee, helping them navigate around the workspace is one area that there's a lot of work going into right now. Then building access is an obvious one. So we have to reduce the touch points, little touch points in the building. And th there's a lot of ways to do that, but building access is, is the front line of that. And I think building access um, control panels and, and in-wall systems are likely going to be built going forward with a thermoscan. So that when you go to touch your card to that plate, it takes your temperature. And you have, to get, you have to have two things to get in the building. You've got to have a normal temperature. You've got to have the right access card. And then inside, inside the space, the same things. The last area on technology I'll touch on is an area we're very focused on, which is building wellness. And so, yeah, I think you know we set up a joint venture with Mayo Clinic and Delos Labs uh, last week on their well-living lab to 
really spend time thinking about building wellness. Now, this is air control systems. It's particulate matters in the air. It's all the things that, that I think are now becoming very, very front and center on how we keep people healthy inside these buildings. And technology is going to be the driver of all that. Christian, are you seeing some of the same things in your conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think uh, Brett described it really well. If you if you kind of want to headline it, uh, we said already earlier, health and safety will be absolutely front and center for every kind of, of building environment. And, and then that buildings are smart is almost table stakes. We have seen that now with all new developments over the last couple of years. Uh, buildings have to continue to be efficient. That was something which was important before. It will continue to be important. But I think the, the element of, of buildings being human, and you can put a lot of behind that word human, is, is something which, which will have increased importance. And then finally, buildings need to be intelligent. We need to learn within the buildings, the data we are collecting, the machine learning which is possible within buildings is something which will be, which will be key. And I think that will kind of change a little bit the, the uh, dynamics of, of what tenants will expect from their landlords. And I think one of the major outcomes of this crisis in most global markets, we had in the past couple of years a landlord-favorable environment. And this crisis moves us now in most markets to a tenant-favorable environment. And now those tenants will now define their expectations towards their landlords, what type of buildings they are requesting. And I think for, for those real estate owners who go first on that, and, and, and bring all those technologies and all those features into their buildings, they will be the ones who will have still uh, fully these buildings uh, versus those who are slow to invest, who will be the ones who will show that vacancy which will come on the back of that global economic crisis. Yeah, and, and just, I'm just going to Christian's point. I just make one point this point. Christian's exactly right on this. And I think, Brendan, what we're going to see going forward is some sort of building wellness accreditation, just like we have lead accreditation now. I think it's highly likely. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to promote this or it'll be done as an industry effort, but there's going to be some sort of accreditation that buildings will be able to earn based on wellness. And right now, I can tell you right now today, on building tours we're doing in the major cities in China, so Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, the criteria for the tenants uh, on just a spreadsheet on evaluating buildings to lease, building wellness is now top of the list. It didn't exist a month ago on the list. Now, the first things that our brokers are, are evaluating on buildings before they show them to the prospective tenant is air handling systems, touch points, protocols around access, ingress and egress. So this, this sort of, and Christian's exactly right, this sort of building wellness is I think going to become a standard that landlords are going to have to implement to get the highest rents and keep the highest occupancies. And how much, just before pre-crisis, how, how much would you see from tenants in terms of asking those questions? I mean, I, I'm sure some portion cared about it. it, it it's, it's very little. I mean, you would see some of the more forward-thinking um, firms that really fight for talent, say tech firms, certainly put a premium 
on certain types of buildings that they weren't accredited this way, but you know, elite accreditation mattered. Having a lot of common areas and garden areas and outdoor areas mattered. But this is different than that. This is really technical specifications around air handling, around ingress and egress, all those things that are going to be, I think, uh, basic requirements for tenants going forward. So this is, Brennan, this is very different than the way it was just a month, two months ago. Yeah, I think there is some learning here uh, to follow up on, on Brett's point from, from areas where you had health concerns before. And I, I like to use the example of some of the highly polluted cities in Asia. I mean, we, we moved our own people and many of our clients over the last kind of two to three years in those areas into buildings where you have air filtration systems and water filtration systems, which create an environment which tends to be much, much better than what those employees who use those buildings have at home, which has been a, a major attraction to join those companies who are located on those buildings and then stay in the office. I mean, there's a lot of other aspects too, but it was driven by that highly polluted environment those people were living in. And, and, and they, they appreciated that kind of offering, which frankly, in, in many other parts of the world, no one was really focused on about because they weren't concerned about air and water and, and, and those type of things. But as Brett rightly says, this is changing now. And, and, and so, but we can, we can look into those examples and see how the office of the future may look also in the U.S. going forward. Yeah, and Christian made a point a moment ago I, I want to touch on, Brendan, which is Christian touched on this relationship between landlord and tenant and who has the leverage. If there's, if there's one interesting conclusion from this pandemic is that that equation of leverage has been thrown out the window. And what we're seeing today is that landlords are now in a place where they are being forced to do things to support their tenants that they never envisioned having to do. And whether it's rent reductions, whether it's rent abatement, whatever it may be, Landlords in this pandemic have learned very quickly that their existing tenant base is critically important, that the switching cost of losing a tenant and replacing them right now is massive. And so those rules where a landlord for the last 100 years would say, you have a lease, and these are the terms of the lease, and you're going to live by those terms, those are out the window. And it's, it's created a very interesting dynamic in that tenant-landlord relationship that Christian was touching on. And one of the things, I had a conversation last week about the response of some of these large office parks in India, which are kind of effectively cities, and actually how quick and how responsive the landlords were in terms of sending people home. Like, it was really their determination. And it, it sounds like what both of you are talking about is that landlords in some ways need to reconceptualize themselves as, as like micro-mayors, right? They have a responsibility to their citizens, in this case, the citizens is analogous with tenants, in the sense that if, if you know, we're living in Los Angeles and, and Brett, you and I end up drinking polluted water, we know who to get mad at. It's the local public officials, right? They're responsible, they're responsible for our wellness around basic utilities, but air and kind of the, 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 the health conditions within a building, it's largely the responsibility of, of the landlord. And so in some ways, it's, it's almost this reframing of what it means to be 
for example, an office or multifamily landlord, that you are responsible for the well-being of the people in your in your buildings to an extent you never had to think of before. I think the as you said it, Brett, you got to pay your rent. There's this kind of landlord-tenant, uh, highly transactional relationship that 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 existed for a very long time. If instead it's much more of a you know, you're the official, right, who's responsible for the health and well-being of my employees, and I'm relying on you to make the right determinations around, you know, water quality and air quality and access control. It's a, it's a very different mindset in, in being a landlord. Well, it's, it's, but, and it's not just a different mindset, but, but Brendan, th- think about, this isn't just an attitudinal framework, it's a legal framework. Mm-hmm. So now you have, think, think of it from the landlord's perspective. I have a multi-tenant office building in Midtown Manhattan, and if I don't have the proper protocols in place to screen health, and I allow, through my negligence, uh, one of my tenants' employees to infect the entire building, and someone, God forbid, passed away, there are serious liability issues now extant in the marketplace that no one knows how to deal with right now. By the way, one of the biggest barriers to properly having a healthy environment for employees are some of the legal restrictions we have in the United States and Western Europe on surveillance and asking questions around health and these are very very big issues that landlords are taking on right now they want healthy buildings but they're not allowed to ask you brendan if you if you don't look well and you're walking the building they're not allowed to ask you how you feel you can't do that right you can't surveillance of employees has been something that we've all been very interested in not because we want to know what they're doing in their private lives we want to know how they work we want to know how they use space this pandemic will provide an opportunity to surveil employees in a different way, in a, in a, and not in a nefarious way, in a way to understand, are they coming in close contact with someone who may have, now we now know is infected? How are they using the, the spatial, spatial flow of traffic in buildings? But this, you're right, Brendan, the landlords now take on an additional responsibility and liability to make sure their tenants are, are safe and well. Well, this, this pandemic will and force on society to deal with some very fundamental questions. I mean, just what Brett was mentioning is the question between to what extent is data privacy superseded by health and safety? Um, Because at the moment, data privacy prevents in many, many countries that surveillance. But now with health and safety, you may want to reconsider what, what, what beats here what is top of mind and and you you have uh, a lot of those more societal questions which are now coming up um which which we have to kind of find an answer to because the impact of that pandemic is obviously mostly burdening on the lower end of the society not only immediately because they are running out of jobs and maybe unemployed, but also longer term, because what we already see is how robots are now being used to to clean uh, industrial facilities, hospital facilities. But what it means, yes, it's great that they clean it and, and nobody is exposed to maybe a risky environment, but it also means that people who cleaned it before are now running out of a job. And, 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 and we won't have new jobs for them easily afterwards. And so there are quite a lot of big questions coming up on the back of that pandemic. And, and your point around 
whether landlords uh, are now in a different position going forward, I think uh, you can almost put that under that whole topic, uh, the way we are moving from a shareholder capitalism to a stakeholder capitalism. Because in the past, the landlord was mostly interested in optimizing the financial outcome of the building. But now the landlord has to be very considerate about the health and safety of that building which will also have a major influence on the longer term financial play of that building. But at the beginning, it is an investment. And using that, that, that stakeholder framework, I'm curious, we've talked a lot about office, right, in this conversation. But if you looked at retail, where there's by definition two stakeholders around the public, the, 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 the public safety and the public health considerations, how do you think that plays into the decisions of, say, enclosed mall owners, right? These shopping centers, a lot of them are pushing to open very quickly. And you have both the consideration of the tenants, the, the stores and their employees, but then also the people coming to these centers. And in some ways, it's kind of like an edict of a, of a local mayor saying this, this area is now open for business. Do you think they'll have to consider this in ways they never did before? And how do you think this broadly impacts the, the retail industry? Well, you know, already pre-pandemic, the retail market was rapidly bifurcating into those owners and development uh, types that would succeed and those that wouldn't. Enclosed malls have been on the bad side of that equation for now some years. So generally speaking, the more profitable, uh, higher foot traffic retail locations are open air or something approximating open air. And the enclosed malls have been, in many cases, uh, a bit of dinosaurs in, in the retail revolution. This pandemic simply accelerates that. So um, I look, there are a lot of very successful closed air malls that will continue to be successful with a different protocol of how people shop and how people walk around those malls. But I do think that one of the outcomes for retail from this pandemic is even a, a, a more accelerated paths to more open-air retail, Main Street-type uh, environments. And by the way, we already saw that. The other thing I'd mention about retail, which is really interesting to me, is we had a, a very large institutional retail developer, institutional owner, on one of our Exco calls last week. And I asked her how she's thinking about restaurants and bars and these types of retailers surviving through the pandemic. Because given the social distancing rules, the math would tell you that really no restaurant, no bar, no gym could survive this. And she said something very interesting to me. She said, had this been any other sort of downturn, we would sadly let those businesses fail and we would replace them with more successful uh, uh, formats in those spaces. She said, we're not gonna let any of them fail. It, we can't, we have to have them stay. And so we're going to do whatever it takes. And she said, even if it means telling them they don't have to pay rent for a year, we're going to keep these retailers in business because we have to have them in business to get the foot traffic for the rest of our retail locations. So retail, this pandemic has just accelerated a trend in retail that's been extant in this market for the last five, seven years. And there's going to be, through this pandemic, there are going to be very, very clear losers in the retail world, but I think some very clear winners as well. The malls, is, I think, is in that middle area. 
Yeah, it, you know, uh, as Brad says, this this pandemic has accelerated trends, which probably would have taken 10 years, will now happen in 12 to 18 months. But again, we have to be careful to say that one size fits all here. I mean, just to take the example, in the winter, uh, I would rather be in a, in a closed retail mall in Toronto than in an in a high street open air location and in, in, in Dubai, I want to be all year long in an, in an air conditioned uh, uh, closed mall. And, and so I think we have to go back to the point of confidence. If you have somebody running a retail mall, which is able to provide the confidence to the potential visitors of that mall, that this is a safe place, a healthy place. The advantage of malls is that they are controlled. When you compare the situation on Fifth Avenue, uh, you can't control Fifth Avenue High Street retail because you know there are lots of people walking around there and you cannot, whereas in a mall, you can control the access, you can use all these precautions, which, which Brett was mentioning, which you can use while entering an office building, you can do that when entering a, a, a retail mall. You know, you can take temperatures and all of that. I think one important factor, because you were asking whether there's a massive liability for the mall owners and potentially for mayors, one big difference, which we kind of should consider, asking people to come back into the office is something where we require them to come for work. Going to a mall for shopping is something people decide on their own. They do that for leisure purposes. And I think there is still a distinction between the, the responsibility you have as an employer to ask your people to come back into the office and the precautions you have to take compared to when people decide personally that they want to do something for leisure. And I'm curious about something you said, Brett. You said um, kind of how these these retail landlords are highly vested in the success, the long-term success of some of their smaller tenants. And one of the things we've seen over the last five years is that the relationship between landlord and tenant in the retail space has been changing. Um, you, know, you can you can always look at a lease as kind of a form of leverage, right, on any retailer, and it's a, it's a fixed cost that they have to pay to acquire customers. Um, but percent rent is kind of an indirect form almost of micro equity ownership in some way. And what you've seen is as a lot of the retailers started to go bankrupt in the last, the big retailers in the last three years, um, companies like Simon, for example, took equity positions and, and frankly came to control them. And what it seems like we're confronting in the forward 12 months is a situation where a lot of retailers are facing liquidity and solvency crises. Real estate fixed cost is a huge portion of their cost base. And do you think that we, we enter a world where landlords start to become more equity-like in their relationship with retailers? Do you think that starts to shift where, whether it's a move towards more percent rent or it's a move towards converting rent concessions into equity ownership positions or it's, a, or it's the business of taking over um, bankrupt retailers themselves? What do you think that looks like over time? Well, I think it's I think it's absolutely fair to say that large retail owners have become joint venture partners with their retailers. There's there's no other way to describe it. Your examples of uh, some major institutional owners taking equity positions 
in tenants they had, they did that for one reason. They couldn't have the space go dark, right? They may, they may, they may believe or not believe in the retailing concept, but they, they know for sure they can't have 30,000 square feet dark. And so they, they prop up that retailer until they can figure out a better solution. But I do think that retail owners now and for the foreseeable future are beginning to look at or already looking at their tenants as partners in their business. And if you think about it, Brendan, think about this ecosystem. So you have the tenant that pays the rent. You have the landlord that collects the rent and maintains the, the space. And that landlord has leverage on that project, which he then pays to the bank. This ecosystem is being disrupted right now. So the landlord goes to four of their 10 retail tenants, says, I'm going to give you rent abatement, or I'm going to take an equity position, whatever it may be. That's great. But what does that landlord now do with the bank? Right? That, that, so what I think, another thing that happens here is this environment becomes extremely difficult for the undercapitalized or overlevered retail landlord because they can't do those things. They can't be the joint venture partner with their tenants because they can't afford to be. So the big retail institutional owners, the Simons of the world, the Mace Rich of the world, these folks have the ability to get through this storm, become partners with those tenants, do the things they need to do to keep those tenants alive. Those tenants that are in smaller, less capitalized projects with owners that are less, you know, don't have balance sheets can do that. You just think about the ecosystem. They're the ones that go out of business right. because they don't have a joint venture partner in their owner. Which if you take that thought of Brett, which I completely agree with, it actually speaks for shopping centers and against high street. Because on the high streets, you have such a diverse group of landlords that maybe in every third, fourth building, you have somebody who can't afford to take such a contract. And right. they will probably have vacant space over the next couple of years. And it will take time until that space ends up either with a different tenant or that building ends up with a landlord who can afford that new type of, of contracts, which you are describing. Whereas the big mall owners, they can run those kind of agreements. I mean, this is a trend which we have seen first coming into hotels, then it came into retail. We see it now over the last two to three years coming into co-working and flex space where we have those type of agreements. I think it will be just something which is one way of, of creating a relationship between landlord and tenants, but a very, very significant way of, of sharing kind of the risk of that contract. It's a, it's a really good point, Christian. And, and it's, you know, you can take that one step further to say retail. So restaurants, just say restaurants and bars for a moment or yoga studios, workout gyms, those establishments that are tenants, let's, let's use Christian's example on the high street. So they have individual owners who own that little building or that little space of the block. They, they will get no help and, and they will go under. And those same tenants that are in well-capitalized malls, to Christian's point, will survive because their owner can help them survive. And so going forward, if I'm a yoga studio or a restaurant or a bar or a gym, where do I want to locate? I want to, this is a different criteria for a tenant now. I want to locate in a development that has a well-capitalized owner. So if this happens ever again, God forbid, I have a better chance of survival. It, and it's, it's flipped the equation, right? Because a lot of the highest end retail uh, establishments have purposely chosen 
to be on the high street for that boutique feeling and experience. But Christian has raised a number of issues around that. Less capitalized owners, inability to control foot traffic, inability to do temperature, to all the things that Christian mentioned about a controlled environment to make people safe don't exist on the high street. They do in malls. Christian's exactly right on that. Great. Well, Brett and Christian, thank you both so much for joining. This has been a really interesting conversation, a lot of just unique perspectives. And I think um, I'd frankly love to do it again in like, you know, three months and see what we've learned and, and, and what's changed. Um, so thank you so much for joining. Love to. Always Thanks, great spending time with you, Thanks, Brett. Christian. Thanks, Christian. Nice talking to you Bye. again. All the best. Bye. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.